So my name is Jessica Pasha. My husband Adam and I are members at the Heights, and today we're going to spend some time together in God's Word. Today's teaching comes from Exodus chapter 6, verse 13 through 25, and if you've looked ahead, it's the genealogies. So stick with me here today. Um, in the Bible, the large numbers are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verses. So let's hear what God has to speak to us today. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's families, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their family records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites, according to their family records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Lezaphon, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, daughter of Aminadab, and sister of Nashon. She bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithmar, the sons of Korah, Usser, Lakana, and Abiaseth. These are the clans of the Korhites. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Pudiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the Levite families by their clan. We did it! <laughs> so let's pray together. We, we're doing a test on those names next week, so come prepared. Um, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of your word. We ask that you speak clearly to us through it today. Help us to not just listen, but truly obey it for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up one more time for Jessica. I, I feel like you deserve like a standing ovation after that. I am confident that nobody else in this room, me included, could have blazed through that that well. Um, so uh, full transparency, whenever I, uh, whenever I got into the study this week and was like working this out, I was like, I texted J Jason, who leads our worship. I said, Jason, text Jessica Pasha right now and make sure she can read on Sunday. <laughs> so anyways, thank you so much, uh, Jessica. Uh, happy Palm Sunday, folks. Happy Palm Sunday. Excited to celebrate uh, Palm Sunday uh, by kicking off this week, uh, kicking off this week of Holy Week. Uh, I want to encourage you with one thing real quick before we dive in. Uh, Stephen Reese, who is our communications director around here, has done an incredible job putting together a Holy Week guide for you. Yeah, you can give it up for Stephen Reese. We can celebrate Stephen Reese. I love that honor culture. Um, I, Stephen's probably not even in here because he's running around serving uh, somebody. Oh, he's in here loving it. He's down front. He, he's positioned for the praise. He's positioned for the praise. <laughs> Um, I <laughs> know, um, but he did a great job of putting together a Holy Week guide for you that you should have received in your email last night. It's got a devotional every day. It goes right along with our year of the Bible reading plan. So please uh, follow that. It is an incredible resource. If you don't have that, you can find that at theheightsdenver.com backslash Holy Week, correct? Love it. So would love for you to do that. All right, grab a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter six. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one out of the chair back in front of you. You can open that up to page 51, find the big number six, the little number 14, and you are going to be right where we are diving in. Now, if you were paying attention to the reading at all, which I assume you were because you cheered, uh, we've got a hard one today. You, you're probably sitting there wondering like, why did I show up? What's going to be uh, what's going to be said today? Uh, but we have a we have a conviction out of this list today. What's going to be said out of this list today? But we have a conviction. Uh, here's our conviction around here. We believe that every single word of the scriptures is valuable for our growth, our renewal, and our joy. Even these words, 
even these words. Here's where this conviction comes from. It's 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. These will be on the screen. It says this, all scripture, that includes all of it, uh, all scripture, including Exodus, 60, or Exodus 6, verses 14 through 25, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the people of God or the man of God, that means human beings, so the human beings of people, human beings of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is our conviction that every bit of it is valuable, even these bits of it, even these bits of it. This is why we are in the middle of what we're calling the year of the Bible, where we are encouraging every single person that's a part of the Heights to build a habit of daily Bible reading. Because if the Bible doesn't play a primary role in our life, we're taking one of the primary tools that God uses to form us and shape us for our joy into the image of Christ. We're taking that out of his hand. All of it is profitable. All of it is useful for our growth and our joy and our renewal. So listen, if you've fallen off year of the Bible, this is your week to jump back in. Like there's grace. There's grace, there's grace Heights family. Jump back in uh, to the Bible, uh, the Bible reading plan. But this conviction is also why we take a whole Sunday to study a passage like this that is a seemingly random list of names. That if we're really honest, if we were just reading through Exodus on our own, me included, we would just kind of like be like, yeah, 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 on to chapter seven, you know? Let's just like move on. Um, but because we, we do this because we think that God has included this in his word for our benefit for our benefit. So here's our big question that we want to track down today. What in the world can we learn from a random list of names that we can't even pronounce? Or maybe Jessica can pronounce it, but we can't. What can we learn from a random list of names uh, that we can't even pronounce? Well, it turns out a whole lot. It turns out a whole lot. In fact, on Thursday, as I was, as I was finalizing my teaching, I found myself like needing to cut, 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 cut so that I didn't stand up here for like an hour and a half and like bore you guys with a bunch of details. So here's how today is gonna work. I want to, out of this list, show you four realities about life with God that we learn through this seemingly random list of names that we find in Exodus 6. Four realities about life with God that we find through this seemingly random list of names that we find in Exodus chapter 6. And uh, along the way, we're going to learn a little bit about Bible genealogies, okay? So you guys ready? You guys ready to dive in? All right, reality number one, reality number one, there is no such thing as a nobody to God. There is no such thing as a nobody to God. One of the primary purposes of genealogies in the Bible is to root the Bible in history. History. So if you're, if you're joining us today and maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a, a Christian uh, and you're maybe exploring, uh, exploring um, the Christian faith, this is really important for you to know. These lists of names are here to show us and remind us that the Bible and the stories that we find in the library of Scripture are not made up, but rather happened to real people in real history. Okay? These are not, these are not uh, religious, spiritual, made-up myth, but these are stories that, of God's activity in real history. They are real, historically rooted, experienced stories by actual human beings, named human beings who existed and are like us. That's one of the purposes that the genealogy serve. And one of the most beautiful things we find in these stories are the names of real but kind of obscure people who likely felt like at times in their life they were worthless nobodies, right? But these lists show us that God counted these people as valuable somebodies. They're named in the scriptures. They're named in the scriptures. So we usually uh, skip over these lists or skim these lists, but what I want to do is I just want to take verse 14, the very first verse, and I just want to read it slowly. And as I read it slowly, and you look at it on the screen or you look at it in your Bible, I just want you to think about the reality of named individuality. Named individuality. That every single one of these people lived life like you and had a name like you. So this is verse 14. We'll dive into it. It says this. These are the heads of their father's families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Hanok and Palu 
and Hezron and Carmi. So let's just think about this together. Let's just take Hezron. Just focus on Hezron. Just look at that name for a second. Hezron. Um, Hezron is a real flesh and blood person like you. Hezron lived 24-hour days like you. Hezron breathed oxygen like you. He tried to trust God like you. He probably had like emotional highs like you and me, and he, he probably had emotional lows like you and me. Hezron is a real person, right? He's a real person. I love what Philip Ryken uh, says in his commentary on this passage. He says this, one way to see the importance of a genealogy like the one we find in Exodus 6 is to answer this question. What if my name were Hezron? What if my name were Hezron? What if this is describing my existence? Or what if my name was Uziel or Elishabah? To us, it may not make much difference that, quote, the sons of Merari were Malai and Mushai, which Mushai is one of my favorite. I just like to pronounce it Mushi. It's like, that's a name. That's a weird OT name, you know? Uh, to us, it may, may, may not make much difference, but to them, it made all the difference in the world. It meant that they were included in the people of God, that God actually knew who they were. He goes on to say, the biblical genealogies like this one show the importance of named individuality. God, God not only has a plan for the salvation of a people, he not only has, in other words, he not only has this like general salvation plan to make the world new, but he has an intimate, personal relationship with every individual in his family. This is what a genealogy shows us. This is probably the most basic thing that a list of names shows us. So here's the, here's the most basic point. As far as God is concerned, there's no such thing as a nobody. There's no such thing as a nobody. So here's what that means. With God, we are living in an opposite reality than the one we are used to, than the one we are used to living in. We're living in an opposite reality. God doesn't work like the world. In the world, out there in the world, there are important people that are like attractive and have money and have positions of power and are a big deal. And then there's like the rest of us, you know, and uh, the rest of us kind of like don't count or whatever, like the powerful people make things happen. Well, in the kingdom of God, we learn that there's no such thing as a nobody. That in the kingdom of God, it does not work like that. In the kingdom of God, there are no insignificant people. So I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us just to like push this down into our life at two levels, the personal level and then the communal level. So first, the personal level. Here's what this means. This means really basically that you are valuable. That you and all the things that make up you, be selfish right now and think about yourself, all of the things that make up your existence your personality and your, your body included. We are not Gnostics around here. We think the body matters. We're going to talk about that in the physical resurrection next week. We think the body, your body, your mind, all of the things that make up your existence matter, not based on like what you contribute to the world, but based on the reality that you are created in the image of God. And that's why you're valuable. You're loved Here's what the gospel says. You are loved not based on what you do or don't do, not based on what you contribute or don't contribute, but based on the reality that God created you, and that is it. You're valuable. I want to hit this real quick. One of the things I love, um, one of the scenes I love in the Bible the most is the baptism of Jesus. It's the baptism of Jesus where um, at the baptism of Jesus, you get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one place at the same time. One of the few places in the Bible that we get that. And the Father shows up and he speaks these words of affection and affirmation and affiliation uh, over the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, here's what I want you to see. God the Father speaks those words over Jesus Christ the Son before Jesus goes and does any of his awesome ministry stuff. Here's what that shows us. We are not valuable based on the awesome things that we do. We're valuable because we're just created in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. Personally, you're valuable. But I also want us to think about this communally. I also want us to think about this communally. That as the people of God, as, as the Heights Church, it is our responsibility to model this to a watching world. It's our responsibility to model this to a watching world. 
If, if, here's what I'm saying. If there's no such thing as a nobody to our God, that means that there must be no such thing as a nobody to us. So think about it this way. Um, in the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ. This like local church, this local conglomeration of people who are going, I want to follow Jesus. One of, the, one of the images that's used to describe us is that we are the body of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are the body of Christ? Um, well, we'll think about it this way. What, what would it mean to say, what is the body of Corbin? This is kind of weird. This is like, this is getting existential. What is the body of Corbin? Well, well, the body of Corbin is how you experience Corbin. That's how you experience me. You, you're experiencing me right now through my body um, and all of its glory. <laughs> and, uh, and you're experiencing me through like my vocal cords, like, you know, saying things. You're experiencing through me me through my body. In the same way, here's what it means to be the body of Christ. That the local church, this conglomeration of people, is the primary way that the world will experience in flesh and blood the person of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. So here's what that means. In the same way, we see this kind of like theological reality that there's no such thing as a nobody to God, but we have to make that a communal reality. If there's no such thing as a nobody to God, there's no such thing as a nobody to us, okay? Now, here's why I'm saying this. I wanna, this is not me preaching as an expositor of the text. This is me kind of preaching as a leader. We've got a huge opportunity to display the gospel to our neighbors next week, okay? Huge opportunity. Easter Sunday's coming. Guys, listen, there's going to be a bunch of people in here that they don't attend church. They don't attend church any other Sunday, but this Sunday. So it's going to be packed in here. But here, and we're not mad about that. We're really excited to have them. But we have an opportunity next Sunday to put this on display, to let people not only hear the good news of Jesus, but experience personally the good news of Jesus, that they are valuable to us. Not because of what they believe, that they have to believe just like us to come in here and belong and be loved. No way. They are valuable to us just because they are created in the image of God and God loves them. We want to model this. So here's what this means for us. Like, as a community, um, we want to model this by like creating an environment of warmth, of relational warmth in the life of our church. Here on Sunday mornings, we want this to be an environment of relational warmth. In your community group, we want that to be an environment of relational warmth where we, as long as people are comfortable, uh, hopefully we're past COVID, we give hugs. We give hugs to each other. We look at each other in the eye and we say, hey, hey, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm for you. I'm not going anywhere. We create a culture around here that's like an in invitational culture where we invite, we don't, have, we don't get clicky with one another, but we invite one another in. Here's why. Because there's no such thing as a nobody to God. And that means there must be no such thing as a nobody to us, okay? First thing we learn from a random list of names, there's no such thing as a nobody to God. Second thing, I gotta move on. Second thing, God has orchestrated your story to form your calling. God has orchestrated your story to form your calling. One of the big kind of like exegetical theological questions that people ask about this Bible passage in particular, Exodus 6, 14 through 30, is why is this genealogy here in Exodus? Like why is this genealogy, um, hear it in my tone, here in this place? Why is it not kind of like on the front end of the book, where it's kind of like we get through it and then know the story. Why is it not on the back end of the book? In, in a lot of ways, this genealogy, it seems like it's an interruption to the story. It's like the story's kind of cooking, right? It's like God shows up to Moses. He calls Moses burning bush moment. Moses goes back. He's kind of like going back and forth with the people. In chapter seven, the plagues are going to start, and all of a sudden, the exodus is going to commence. But before we get there, there's this like weird interruption of names, it would, it, it would almost be like this. So, so I'll give you an analogy of kind of like how, how this question kind of like flushes itself out. It'd be like you going to the AMC movie theater right over here on, on 9th and Colorado. Um, and you're sitting there, you're watching your new, you know, your new favorite movie, whatever movie that is for you. And uh, it's like the tension is rising in the story. You can like feel the climax coming. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the thing, the credits just start to roll. And there's like this random list of names and like what they contributed and why, that they, why they should be highlighted. And in the middle of the credits, like the lights kind of come on and everybody in the movie theater is like, do you know what's going on? I don't know what's going on. Do you know what's going on? Why, why, is, why is this right here? And uh, this little 16 year old that works at the movie theater like pops in, they've got their AMC tag on and they're like, hey, just chill. 
the movie will be right back, okay? That's essentially what happens at the end of Exodus chapter 6. And so the question we have here is why here? Why is this random list of names here? Why does it seem like the credits are rolling in the middle of the drama of the story? Well, to cut to the chase and just give you the answer, the reason this list of names is here is to give Moses and Aaron, this is their family line, it's to give Moses and Aaron credibility as the leaders of God. Of God, excuse me. It's to give them credibility as the leaders of God. This list of names is there to show their family line and show how God has orchestrated their whole family history and their whole story to empower these two guys into their calling for this moment in history to lead God's people to freedom. So like, original readers of this would have read this list of names, they would have been really familiar with this, with this list of names, and they would have been like, oh yeah, if anybody's going to lead the people of God out of slavery, it's those two guys. They've got the credentials to do it. We know that this is the point of the genealogy, by the way, when we look at the conclusion of it in chapter 6, verse 26. So we get the list of names, and then this is the next line. It says this, it was this, circle this, it was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. Their story formed their calling. Their story formed their calling. God had orchestrated their whole family history. God had orchestrated their whole story in order to form their calling. And what I want you to see is the same is true for you. God has orchestrated your whole family history. He has orchestrated your whole story in order to form your unique calling. Now, if I was sitting in, in your seat right now, here would be the pushback that I'd be given to me. Yeah, but that feels kind of lame. Like, this is, this is Moses and Aaron, right? Like, these are the leaders of Exodus. Their names are in the Bible. Like, I'm kind of a, hint, hint, nobody compared to them. To which I would say, refer to point one. There's no such thing as a nobody to our God. And in the same way that he orchestrated the stories and family histories of Moses and Aaron to empower them into a specific calling for their life, their unique calling, he has done the same for you. God orchestrates our stories in order to form our callings. I love the way Pete Scazzaro talks about this, um, and he usually does this, uh, you, uh, he usually does this with a little smirk on his face. He says this, he says, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. Jesus might live in your heart, and he but grandpa lives in your bones. And he uses this positively and negatively, but I want us to think about it positively today. His point is that God has put you in a particular family at a particular time in history. And listen, I'm very aware, I'm very aware that family may come with a lot of pain and baggage. It might come with a lot of pain and baggage, but you know what? It also comes with other things. It comes with things like living in a particular place in a particular time with particular people. It comes with particular passions that you've been handed to, uh, handed down, that you've had handed down from your family and interests and opportunities that you've received from your parents and your grandparents. He has orchestrated your story in order to form your calling. And so a lot of people are asking this, like if I can just make this really practical, they're going, man, like what is, what is it that I'm actually called to leverage my life for? Like, what, what is my calling in life? And underneath that, there's this desire that we all have to kind of live a life of purpose and value and contribution. Another way we ask this is, what is the will of God for my life, right? What's the will of God for my life? Well, part of what you need to know, part of what you need to look at to uncover this is what the raw materials of your life are that God has just kind of put there without you creating it. Like this is, this is part of how you know you're calling. Usually your calling is the merging together of your unique experiences and passions and giftings that you have received from your family in a particular time and place, and you didn't control a lot of that. Like it was just kind of, it was just kind of given to you. God gave it to you. So here's what I'm trying to say. We all have the tendency when it comes to thinking about the will of God and our life calling to kind of drift off into fantasy land, you know, where it's like, Maybe God, like, wants me to be a sailboat captain in Maui, 
you know? Maybe, I don't know, that's kind of like my fantasy land of calling, because it's like, the only thing people get mad at is the weather, you know? Everybody's kind of happy on a sailboat in Maui. We all have kind of the tendency to drift off into fantasy land when we, uh, when we think about our calling, but what this list of names shows us is that it's often right in front of us. It's often like the clearest thing. Just like look at your family history and your gifts and your passions, and you likely have your calling right there. I'll give you an example uh, to, kind of, to kind of make it sticky. One of the things that I'm really bad at when I'm looking for something is missing the thing that is right in front of me. It's missing the thing that I'm right, uh, is right in front of me. And this maybe, I, I don't want to overgeneralize this, but I think that this is a guy thing, okay? So, uh, so like uh, about 8.30 every night, about 8.30 every night, um, I get hungry and I need a little snack, okay? And I need a little snack. Um, I know that this isn't healthy, but I'm just trying to live my life, okay? <laughs> Forget that. I, you know, and my snack of choice lately has been uh, the Costco pretzels that are filled with peanut butter. I love those. I love those. Yes, we've got, yes, they are so good. And you know what? In my mind, here, here's the reality. In my mind, uh, I'm being a little bit healthy because at least I'm not eating ice cream. You know, it's just pretzels with peanut butter. Um, and so I go, I, so at 8.30 at night, I go, I go to our pantry and I'm, I'm looking at the pantry and I'm like, I'm looking for the peanut butter filled pretzels and I can't find them. And I go, here's the line that comes out, babe. Babe, where are our peanut butter filled pretzels? And she will kindly come over to me and she'll be like, they are right here. <laughs> right here. And guys, this, this is just like an example of what happens in my life all the time. Like literally with clothes and with food, like I cannot find the thing that is right in front of me. And Allie has to help me do that. And here's, here's my point. When it comes to your calling, when it comes to the will of God, don't miss the thing that is right in front of you. Don't be like me like, standing in front of my pantry looking for the peanut butter filled pretzels. Look at what God's done. Look at how God's orchestrated your story, your family history in order to form your calling. I want to I want to speak to one other thing before we move on here. Um, I think I think a lot of people also can miss their calling because um, and this is true of me. We spend a lot of a lot of time kind of daydreaming about living someone else's calling instead of our own. It's like we we, we go like, man, like, look at so-and-so. And usually this is on social media. It's not any of our immediate friends because we know all of our friends have junk too. But we like look at people that are kind of like at a distance a little bit. And we're like, man, I don't like my calling. I want to live, live their calling. But here's what I would say to you. Live your calling. Be you. Be you. Only you can be you. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, the second time I've quoted him in this little section, he wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Fantastic book. Pick it up. Read it. Read it again. Read it every year. Um, and he, he, he quotes this rabbi named Rabbi Zusha in there who says this. It'll be on the screen. He says, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zusha? So in the coming world, you're not going to be asked, why were you not more like Moses? But I'm going to be asked, man, why weren't you Corbin? Why weren't you Corbin? Be free to be you. And live into your calling with your unique giftings and your unique, your unique family history in this place, in this time. Be you. Live into your calling. Live into your calling. God has orchestrated your family in order to form your calling. Number three. Number three. God's purpose for your life happens by you choosing the way of faithfulness to him. Okay? God's purposes for your life will happen by you choosing the way of faithfulness to him, okay? One of the interesting things about genealogy, the genealogies in the Bible is that they are highly selective, okay? So we're learning a little bit about genealogies right here. They are selective. In other words, they don't mention every single family member in the family tree all the way through. They name specific people. They name specific people. If they, if they named every family member, uh, we couldn't even read our Bibles, right? So they have to be highly selective. And there's always reasoning behind the specific people that they choose to name, and usually, there is a discipleship lesson behind each one of those people, especially if there is a story about them somewhere else in the scriptures, okay? Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to double-click on two of these people to show you two of the discipleship lessons that the writer is reminding us of. First, we will look at good old Phineas from verse 25. Good old Phineas from verse 25. Here's verse 25. Uh, you never thought you would get something out of this, but we're going to get a whole lot out of it, hopefully, in the next few minutes. Verse 25, Aaron's son, Eliezer, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. okay? So if you have your Bible, circle that. We're going to double-click on it. 
Now, the original readers of this genealogy or hearers, this would have been read, the original hearers of this genealogy would have been much more familiar with the stories of the Old Testament than we are. In fact, many of them would have had them memorized. And so as these names are being read, there are stories and lessons firing off in their heads. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Phineas. When they heard the name Phineas, they would have been like, oh, yeah, Phineas from Numbers 25. Remember him? He's all about choosing the way of faithfulness to God. Like this is what the purpose of the genealogy is. So here's a little backstory on what happens with Phineas. I'm just going to warn you, buckle up. This is intense, okay? Here's Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, the people of God are in one of the darkest places they have ever been. Okay, it is, Numbers 25 is, is tough stuff. Uh, And Numbers 25 is defined by two realities among the people of God, Israel, spiritual adultery and sexual immorality, spiritual adultery and sexual immorality. And in fact, so so they're cheating on God, they're cheating on God with other gods, and they are sleeping around with everybody. In fact, spiritual adultery and sexual immorality often go together. They often go together. So, So here's what that means really practically. If you're here and you are wrestling with an addiction to pornography, what, what we're going to do whenever we, whenever we talk, first talk to you, if you come to us and you go, hey, I want to break this cycle, we're not going to be like, stop it, stop it. What we're going to look at is what, the spirit, what kind of spiritual adultery is going on in your heart to get at the root of the issue, right? Because these things always go together. This is what's happening in Numbers 25. Spiritual adultery, they're cheating on God with other gods, and it's fleshing itself out in sexual immorality. So, so they're cheating on Yahweh with the little g gods of a nation called the Moabites. And along with sleeping around, uh, along with that, they're sleeping around with Moabite women. And the people, and, and it gets worse because the leaders of Israel were folding like cheap chairs and like they weren't holding the people accountable, okay? And so like everyone is just, has just gone dark. Like it is a really dark time for the people of Israel. But there's this wild scene in Numbers 25 when Phineas rises up to stand for faithfulness to Yahweh when no one else is. Here's how it goes down. Prepare yourself. <laughs> Prepare yourself. Um, so a man named Zimri, this is, this is me summarizing Numbers 25. A man named Zimri brings a Midianite mistress named Cosby into the tabernacle, intending to have sex with her in God's very house, okay? So this would have been the closest thing that I can imagine, but elevate it uh, a th- times a thousand because it's the actual presence of God in the tabernacle would be like uh, sexual adultery going on on the stage of the church. Okay, this is, this is some tough stuff. This is some tough stuff. Um, and because of this, this is kind of the culmination of all, like the, the culminating sign of kind of like their, their spiritual adultery and sexual immorality. It culminates in this moment. And it was in this moment that Phineas takes his stand. This is Numbers 25, verses 7 and 8. It'll be on the screen. When Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman. Everybody's like, whoa. Now, I'll just leave it up to your pure imaginations, your pure imaginations, how he killed these two people with one spear. It's because they were close together. (laughs) They were close together. Are you guys getting what I'm saying? (laughs) Nod your heads. (laughs) Nod your heads. I'm trying to like keep it PG. Um, so he, dry, so he dry, drives his fear. Now, that sounds really extreme to us. Um, that sounds really extreme to us. And I don't have time to get into the whole story. But it is because he chooses the way of faithfulness when no one else does that the whole nation is spared from God's judgment. This is Numbers 25, 10 through 12. It says this. The Lord spoke to Moses. Phineas, son of Eliezer. Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal so that I did not destroy the Israelites in my zeal. Therefore declare, I grant him my covenant of peace. Okay, now don't miss this gospel note. It was through the punishment of sin and the execution of justice as the people are pierced for their iniquity that the wrath of God is turned into the peace of God. 
Okay, this is a this has gospel overtones to it. This is the gospel. I'll name this more explicitly here in just a second. But here's the more specific point. This one man's name listed among many is on purpose. It's to remind us that God's purposes for our life and even God's purposes for the lives of others. And I think that's a really important point. Even God's purposes for, for the lives of others are happened by us choosing the way of faithfulness to God right? So you think about this as a parent. You think about this as a parent. Your faithfulness to God, your faithfulness to God matters for your kiddos. It matters for your kiddos. Think about this as a friend. You might have friends that are close to you, but far from God. You might have friends that are close to you, but far from God. And man, your faithfulness to God, your faithfulness to God has ramifications for them and their faithfulness to God and knowing God. The point being, be like Phineas. The point is, be like Phineas. Now, the good news is, can we just apply the gospel here really quickly so that we can kind of alleviate the pressure? The good news is, you don't have to spear people to do that. You don't have to spear people to do that. Jesus has been pierced for our transgressions in our place. All we have to do is take a courageous stand for him and invite people in because Jesus has already paid for our sins and theirs. He has been pierced for our transgressions, so that's why we don't have to do that. Thank God we live on the other side of the cross. Faithfulness is easier <laughs> than like Phineas, what Phineas did, right? Number four, number four. God's purposes for your life can be ruined by you choosing the way of rebellion against him. God's purposes for your life can be ruined by you choosing the way of rebellion against him. Remember the selective nature of genealogies, that they're selective. Some of the names remind us of positive examples of discipleship to Jesus, like Phineas. Others remind us of negative examples of discipleship to Jesus. We find this in the name Korah in verse 21. So let's look at verse 21 together. Let's look at verse 21 together. It says this, The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The original readers who are reading the list of names would have shuddered at the name Korah. They would have shuddered at the name Korah. Oh, Korah. And the, they would have thought when this name is read, don't be like Korah. Korah reminds us, and the story of Korah reminds us that God's purposes for our life can be ruined by choosing the way of rebellion against God. So Korah is uh, Aaron's cousin. Korah is Aaron's cousin. And in Numbers 16, what Korah does is he incites a rebellion or a coup against Aaron and Moses. He doesn't really like the spiritual authority that God has given Aaron and Moses. And so he starts kind of like going behind their backs and organizing and inciting a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. We see this in Numbers chapter 16, starting in verse 3. It says this, They came together against Moses and Aaron and told them, You've gone too far. Moses and Aaron, everyone in the entire community is holy and the Lord is among them. In other words, they're saying, we don't like your spiritual leadership. We don't like you exercising authority over us. All of us are the same. And they say, why then do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's assembly? In short, Korah didn't like his God-given place in ministry. So he starts tearing down the leaders that God has placed in authority over him by gossip and slander and eventually publicly accusing Moses and Aaron right here of abuse of power. And at the end of, but at the end of Numbers 16, a God-sized miracle happens. And the earth actually opens up and swallows them whole with their possessions. This is what happens in Numbers chapter 16. It's a wild story. If you haven't read it, go read it. Korah rebels and his purposes that God has placed on his life are ruined. They're swallowed up into the, the pit of the earth. What we're supposed to read into that is they are swallowed up into the pit of hell. Swallowed up into the pit of hell. Point being, be like Phineas, but don't be like old cousin Korah. Careful, God's purposes for your life can be swallowed up by you choosing the way of rebellion against God and his purposes and his people. Now, I want to give a word before we kind of land the plane here. I want to give a word. The other little thing with Korah that I want you to see is that rebellion against God isn't as obvious as we think it might be. It's not as obvious as we think it might be. Like, uh, for those of you that are on, like, Instagram and TikTok, it's not, like, it's not like rebellion against God is not like being the atheist TikTok influencer, right? 
What you see in the story of Korah in Numbers chapter 16 is rebellion of God often looks like inciting gossip and slander. That's it. That's what happens in Numbers chapter 16. It often looks like tearing down people that God has placed in authority that are just trying to do the best that they can, though they're not, though they're not doing it perfectly. It usually is just marked by the little things. Gossip and slander and lack of humility. Don't be like Cousin Korah. The purposes God has for your life can be swallowed up. So it turns out that we can learn a lot from a list of names. Uh, we learn that nobody is a nobody. We learn that God has formed our story into our calling. And we are reminded to do a little bit of self-evaluation and to choose the way of faithfulness over the way of rebellion. Where these stories push us inward and they make us think, man, am I on the path of faithfulness to God? Or am I on the path of rebellion against God? Which one am I on? But the final thing that we learn, and I think the best thing that we learn, is that God orchestrates history toward, redempt toward redemption and renewal. What we learn is that even in all of these ups and downs through faithfulness and rebellion, God was steadily preparing salvation for his people through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his life, his death, and his resurrection was being planned by God the Father all the way back here in Exodus chapter 6. Here's how we know. In verse 23, we get a few people named. I want to show you this little connection here between the Old Testament and the New. And in verse 23, we get a few people named. It's, it says this, Aaron married Elishaba, daughter of Amminadab and sister of Nashon. Now, what does verse 23 in Exodus chapter 6 have to do with Jesus? Well, it turns out a whole lot. It turns out a whole lot. Fast forward to the New Testament, to another genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 1, verse 4, we find two of the same names. It reads like this. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Here's what that shows us. All the way back in Exodus 6. All the way back in Exodus 6. God was preparing Matthew 1. God was preparing Matthew 1. From the line of Amminadab and Nashon comes King David. And from the line of King David comes Jesus Christ, the true king, the son of God. Now the question we have to ask is, why did God plan this? Why did God plan this? Why was back in Exodus 6, why was God planning Matthew 1? Back here in this random list of names, why was he preparing for the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, he planned it because in a sense, all of us are Korah. In a sense, all of us are Korah. He planned it so that when we are rebellious like Korah, we don't have to be swallowed up by the wrath of God because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was swallowed up, has been swallowed up for our rebellion. He planned it because, in a sense, all of us are like Zimri and Cosby from Numbers chapter 25. We've committed spiritual adultery and sexual immorality. But because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to be pierced for our sexual immorality and spiritual adultery. Jesus has been pierced for our transgressions. This is the gospel of Christianity. Nobody is a nobody, not even you. God has plans for you. God loves you and values you so much that even though we've chosen the way of rebellion and we deserve death, Jesus chose the way of faithfulness for us. God has substituted Jesus Christ for us. So that by placing our faith in him, we don't have to be swallowed up into the pit of the earth for our rebellion and we don't have to be pierced for our iniquity because Jesus Christ has taken that punishment for us. This is the good news of the gospel. It's what we call the exchange. Jesus gets what we deserve and we get what Jesus deserves. We, because of our sin, because of our willful rebellion against the living God. We deserve death. But Jesus Christ has paid that penalty for us. He died the death that we deserve. And in that, in that exchange, we then get what he deserves for his perfect life, his sinless life. We get resurrection and eternal life forever. We get the forgiveness of sins. We get the love of God. It's the exchange. Now, what I want you to hear me say very clearly is that you are not just born into this reality. You are not just born into this reality. This reality has to be received by faith. 
This reality becomes true for you when you decide, man, living my life my way is not working. I want to place my faith. Another word for that is trust. I want to place my trust in Jesus Christ and his work on my behalf. The Bible calls this a gift. And you don't earn a gift, you simply receive a gift. And so today, as a response to this teaching, I want us to receive the gift of Jesus by faith. This is, the, this is the way into life with God, and this is the repeating pattern of life with God. And in the New Testament, we, we get two signs that are signs that we've received the gift of Jesus Christ, eternal life, forgiveness of sin by faith. They're the signs of baptism and communion. The signs of baptism and communion. And what I want to do is I just want to kind of step out there, and I want to invite you to place your faith in Jesus today and then go public with that faith through one of these two ways. The first way is baptism. In the New Testament, we find that the normative pattern after somebody becomes a Christian is that when somebody places their faith in Jesus, they go public with that faith through baptism. You can think of baptism like a sign of two things. You can think about it like a a bathtub and a grave. It's a sign of washing that Jesus, by faith in Jesus, we are washed of our sins, we are cleansed. And it's also the sign of a grave that that the grave will not hold us, but we will be raised to eternal life with Jesus forever. And so if you're here and you've never been baptized, just cards on the table, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we wanna do a big baptism celebration. Uh, And we want it to to be rowdy. We want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus by hearing real people's stories of how Jesus has brought change to your life. And so if you've never been baptized, man, this is your step. This is your step. We want to encourage you to go public with your faith in Jesus through baptism. There are two groups of people that I think kind of like fall under this. The first group of people is those of you who've been following Jesus for a while, but you've never been baptized. And you're like, yeah, I see that in the New Testament. I've never done that. I'm kind of nervous to do it, but I think that I need to do it out of a sense of obedience to Jesus. We want to have a conversation with you. We want to have a conversation with you. We think this is the initial step of obedience to Jesus that we see in the New Testament. And we want to help you take that step. The other group of you would be those of you who are like, I came in here and I wouldn't consider myself a Christian, but I'm really interested in becoming a follower of Jesus. We want to have a conversation with you about what it looks like to place your faith in Jesus and go public through baptism. And so if that's you, there's one one thing I want to encourage you to do during our response time. There's a card in the chair back in front of you. We want to make this like non-pressure filled. We just want to invite you into a conversation. There's a card in your chair back. Um, called a connect card. And you can grab that card, fill it out and check baptism. And by each of the exits, there's gonna be a little basket. And we just ask that during our response time, while we're singing, you just take that card and you place it in one of the baskets. And our team is gonna follow up with you this afternoon. This afternoon, we're gonna give you a call about what it looks like and have a conversation with you about what it looks like for you to take that step next Sunday on Easter Sunday and be baptized alongside of a, a number of other people. We would love to help you take that step. You doing that car doesn't like sign you up immediately. It's just going, hey, I want to have a conversation. We want to, we want to help you take that step. If you've been baptized, if you've been baptized, you're like, man, I've done that. We remember that the, the way into life with God by placing our faith in Jesus is the reoccurring pattern of life with God. And we celebrate that through communion. We celebrate that through communion. We remember in communion today that Jesus has been pierced for our transgressions so that we don't have to be. We remember that Jesus Christ has been swallowed up into the pit of the earth for our rebellion so that we don't have to be. And by taking communion today, we are signaling to everybody else in the room that my faith is in Jesus Christ. And this is a physical symbol, a way of expressing externally what this reality is internally. I'm trusting Jesus alone. So if you want to take communion, we have stations here in the front. We'll have two stations back there in the back. You can come, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is always marked by a little piece of twine. Um, If you need a gluten-free option, we have a gluten-free option back here to my back left, and you're more than welcome to go back there. Guys, I, I just want to say this. The pattern of the New Testament is that Christian faith is not private. 
It's not private. It's very public. And so today, I want to ask you to express New Testament faith by going public in one of two ways. Either signing up to be, be baptized, if you have never done that, or by taking communion. There's two options. So let's respond in faith. Let's stand and let's respond as the Lord leads us. Great are you, Lord. It's your 